1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken
0: sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I'm alright. Um, I having a brave week it's not especially brave it's just a bit brave for me because i am a coward um i so okay <laughs> i feel shy talking about it my boyfriend is a very talented singer his name is james blake and he released uh, an album called friends that break your heart all about the um, the pain of friendship breakups, which I think is a really potent and amazing thing to talk about. Um, But he, uh, he needed a music video for his song, Say What You Will. And I wrote a treatment for a music video, a comedy music treatment for a video. And I gave it to him and he really liked it. And so did his management. So we went out and found a director who would be willing to bring my vision to life. And that was a man called Bear Damon, who was unbelievably cool and generous and collaborative with me and didn't feel threatened by the fact that I was a woman or that it was my idea. And he put his own spin on it. And we worked together so beautifully. And he never once made me feel like I was imposing with my with my thoughts on the day of shooting he was just such a legend to work with. And I'm sad that I was so shocked and in awe of him for being uh, so kind and just treating me like an equal human being, which is really the basics. But he is one in very few I found in this industry who who didn't just sort of talk down to me or dismiss me. So shout outs to Bear Damon. Um, and that video ended up doing really well and just won a big award. And so that's really cool. Um, for Best Music Video. And because of the success of that video, even though we didn't announce it, that it was my idea or anything to do with me because we were afraid of the public shitting on it or scrutinising it just because I had come up with the idea because obviously there is a bit of an appetite online for me, um, but also, you know, to sort of um, shit on me or degrade me sometimes. But mostly it's because I'm a woman. And if a woman directs or does anything, we hyper scrutinize it and pick it apart and look for what's wrong with it. Even if we don't even know that we're doing it, it can sometimes be an unconscious bias. But because women doing these things still feels quite new when a woman is at the helm of something, I think some of us are looking for the problems, looking for the signs that she's inexperienced or a beginner or not as good as the men in her field. So. That was a bit shit, but it was fine. And so we waited until he'd won the award before we said it was my idea, uh, just because I really wanted to know what people actually thought about it when I wasn't involved. So we did the same thing when on his following music video, I wrote the entire treatment again, thought that they would find another director to do it. And his manager, who is a woman, just asked me, why don't you direct it? You've been in this industry for such a long time. You worked in front of a camera for such a long time. You know what you're doing. You have such a strong vision for this idea. What if I built a team around you of great directors of photography and producers and you just actually executed your vision yourself this time? So I at first thought no, because I would be eaten alive. And also it was a big, scary challenge with the added terror of letting down someone I love. But then I remembered what I say to you all of the time which is, hey, run at your fears. Failure is really noble because it means you're willing to try even when success wasn't guaranteed. And I have a track record of always doing that. And so why stop now? Why allow parasites on the internet and misogynists and dickheads uh, and the idea of failure or even the idea of disappointing anyone, even if it's James, even if it's myself, why allow that fear of something that I can't yet qualify stop me from even trying in which I might find out that I'm good at something or I do a really good job or I make him really happy and I make everyone really happy and I surprise myself and and I, I find this new part of me that I didn't know existed so because I'm not you know Bunkers. I decided to ask a friend who's got a bit more experience than me as a director, uh, especially as a director of photography, but generally just like a great all round knowledgeable human, my friend Chris, I asked him to direct it with me so that I would have someone to hold my hand and to kind of share this experience with. And he again just such a great guy, so sound, never mansplained me, always made space for my ideas and my thoughts and allowed me to have autonomy and and my own level of control in the whole process. It felt very equal and very even and collaborative and joyous, the way it should be between men and women and all human beings of all genders. It never felt barbed with either of these two men. And so we had an amazing experience. We created the video, like I sat in the entire edit. Uh, and. We were happy with what we did. You know, we didn't have a lot of time. We didn't have a big budget. We didn't have a big crew. We didn't have uh, a lot of the resources. Some people have to make a video because we were, you know, doing this somewhat for the first time. And we made something that I'm proud of and that most importantly, my boyfriend loves and his team liked. And we put it out to the world, but again, didn't put my name on it because we knew that there was a chance that James could be harmed by my name being attached to his work or by in particular because again it's like oh his girlfriend directed it so we put it out about a week ago and when we saw that generally it was getting a very positive reaction we finally felt ready to say that this was my idea my treatment and something that I co-directed with my friend and the reaction online today has been very uplifting, mostly. Uh, there have still been some, always women, um, being shitty to me in DMs saying that I'm trying to take attention away from James's career. I'm not. This is just my own thing that I did with him. We collaborated. But generally, it's been a wonderful response and reminded me of the importance to keep reminding you to take credit for your work and that it's okay to soft launch into doing that because we still, unfortunately, live in a world that is so sadly misogynist and frustrating and. Um, unfair that we that we don't allow women to feel safe to put themselves out there and we still make women feel like we have to be above and beyond better than any man at everything we do we have to be the kind of model minority and there's so much more pressure on us it's really fucking exhausting to live like that and it's quite creatively stifling and it makes me feel frustrated but the only way for me to be a part of changing that is to actually do it and utilize the privilege and the power that I have to put my money where my mouth is and make myself vulnerable and put art out there that i don't know how people are going to feel about it and and to take the risk and be vulnerable publicly so that the people with less access and power than me later on will have the reassurance that you can survive the ridiculous terrain of misogyny that comes with being a woman and breaking, you know, new ground or venturing into relatively uncharted territory and so, you know, I'm not trying to over this. I know it's just a music video. I know it's like four and a half minutes long. But it was a big deal for me to do something that I was really scared of. That involved a lot of, a lot of work that was very unfamiliar for me. And it may not be perfect and you may not even like it. You might think it's shit. But at least I did it and I finished it. And I saw it all the way through. And I took the leap of putting it out into the public and putting my name on it and taking ownership of it in spite of what anyone might think. And in spite of whether or not I might ever get any directing work again. But I'm proud of myself. It was really fucking hard and uh, scary. And I'm so happy that I made something that mostly James is happy with because I love that song and I love him. Not in that order. (laughs) Definitely the other way around. Um, And I, I just would like to remind you that... It's so important to find out about these parts of yourself that you may not be familiar with. And it's okay if you don't have all of the answers yet and you don't have all of the experience yet. If I can jump on in front of some really scathing and vile commentators and open myself up like this, hopefully it can inspire you to do so, hopefully with a bit more privacy and grace than I am afforded. Um, and that I'm so proud of you if you're trying and I don't give a fuck about what the result is I think you're such a legend I say this all the time it's so noble to to try when failure is a possibility and I think that if that's something you're doing or considering then go you I'm right there with you and so proud of you and this is the only way we're going to continue to make progress and make more space for each other so that there aren't just the singular directors the singular writers the singular you know camera operators we need there to be a whole army of us there is safety and power in numbers and so you know basically just keep going take the risks I fucking love you I look up to you and if it wasn't for you I wouldn't have done this because you hold me accountable to walk the walk and actually be the person that I keep encouraging all of you to be and so thanks for that anyway Moving on, on a complete tangent, Uh, on the podcast today is is an unusual guest, Um, but he's like a hero of mine and he's a hero of James's and we've grown up with his comedy and he's just such a profoundly unique and interesting man and someone that I wanted to pick the brains of. He is a complete national treasure in Britain. His name is Adam Buxton. And in this podcast, we talk about his experience with mental health and what a midlife crisis is like. And he's not, by the way, known for talking about his intimate feelings. So him talking about these things felt like a a massive, massive privilege. We talk about his relationship with his father, uh, who has now passed and what his father passing kind of did to him and his own relationship with fatherhood and he tells me so much about their relationship and how it shaped him we talk about how that shaped him as a father and and how he connects with his teenage son through music and all the ways in which he feels like he's failing and panicking it's just a very very open conversation with a dad with a straight white dad and I think those conversations are important to be had I'm certainly curious about them Um, you will be happy to know that we both also discuss Zendaya and how perfect she is. So if you're a fan, you'll enjoy that. But mostly, I just really value his openness, his vulnerability, his perspective, and just to hear what, what the dads are going through. He's a wonderful, unusual soul who created such a different lane in comedy and I think that anyone who takes risks and strays away from the norm and and marches to the beat of their own drum and figures things out at their own pace and and shares those things with other people is is so admirable and so inspiring to me so I hope you enjoy this episode this is the absolutely adorable Adam Buxton Bloody hell! one of my lifelong heroes, Adam Buxton, is here to talk to me. Hello Adam, oh, welcome to our How are
2: y- you doing, Jamila? Nice to see you. It's lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for years and years, literally. I think I saw you last in Los, An- Los Angeles.
0: Los um, Angeles, the Dutch Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> part That's of That's kind California. of Sean
2: Connery meets David <laughs> Bowie, <Boeing>. Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, And in fact, talking of David Bowie, it was outside the theatre where I did the uh, David Bowie show that I was taking out there, a show called Bug, which I do regularly about music videos. And we were doing a Bowie special a year, I think, after he died. And you came along to that. I showed a lot of music videos. And then you didn't come to the after show party.
0: I did. I came so briefly. No, I did. I came briefly, but it was so packed with celebrities who love you that I felt like a desperate cunt. (laughs) I wanted (laughs) to leave to save face. Uh,
2: Come on.
0: I don't want to be part of your celebrity harem. Adam, I, I wanted to preserve my dignity by telling you about it three years later. So either way, right. now I may as well have just gone and enjoyed myself. But uh, yeah, it was like we couldn't get could couldn't get to you, couldn't get to the bar, couldn't get anything. It was just rammed. So it was. I was like, well, he's clearly a bigger deal in America than I had presumed. Uh, it was so the first I, one of those
2: kinds of things I'd ever been to. Like I don't do, normally um, I would do Bug in... Uh, the BFI South Bank, a cinema in London that shows a lot of art films and things like that. That's the spiritual home of Bug. And we don't have parties after each show. It was only because I was out in LA and my friend Edgar Wright said, oh, I'll invite some people. I'll get a load of people along to go and see your show. And he knows absolutely everyone in the world. So all these people came like uh, Tim Heidecker and John C. Riley, and Paul Thomas Anderson came and There were quite a few people, I won't mention any names, but there were quite a few. It was interesting to see, wow, this is Hollywood in action. People just making a beeline for Paul Thomas Anderson and making it absolutely clear that they should be in his next film.
0: Yeah, you see, now I, on the other hand, a real career-minded woman, made a beeline away from Paul Thomas Anderson. You see, that's... Lock the long game, you see, I bet he's still wondering about it right now.
2: <laughs> he may, he may well be. No, it was a very, un, it was a very unrelaxing party. You didn't miss anything. <laughs>
0: no, I find, uh, I find I don't fit in with that part of LA yet still. It's been seven years and I, I get very uh, anxious and scared at parties. So I just, yeah, I, I bolted as soon as I got there. I was like, no, this is far too packed. This is too high pressure. I've, I, uh, I have nothing to say to anyone. I'm going to run away. Because um, it always sounds
2: know. like a humble brag when you say this. I'm not saying you. I'm saying when one <laughs> says this kind of thing about, uh, uh, about these sort of situations. Because I don't know about you, but when I was young, I just imagined what that would be like, you know, going oh, to yeah. a party and seeing all these people that you've seen in films and TV shows standing there. That would be the best thing ever, wouldn't it? And then yeah. it, it's so jarring when you actually find yourself in that situation you're thinking wait why isn't this fun this is just stressful
0: (laughs) I know oh my god it's I feel exactly the same way um I uh I because I always go I still go to a lot of them because like the, the the 13 year old uh FOMO you know dragon in me is just saying, go, you know, tonight could be the night you always dreamed of when you'd be watching the Oscars. You wanted to... And it's not in a, like, star fuckery way. It's just these people who've kept you company in your loneliest moments as a kid. You know, the the people who played the outsider when you felt like the outsider, like, the chance to meet some of these artists who, like, were some of the most amazing and, and important, like, kind of parts of you building yourself up as a kid. You want to meet them. And so you go... And then you—it's just like I always end up having like an awkward accident. You know, I ended up stealing a lot of steak at the last big Hollywood party I went to, and I'm not mm. a thief. Uh, but it was a big Sounds buffet, like you are. and there were lots of yeah. It does sound like I am. <laughs> It was a big buffet and they had loads of steak and uh, no one was eating the steak because Hollywood, because no one eats any very much here, unfortunately. Um, and so I just thought, oh God, these would be good steaks to take home. No one's eating them anyway. So I went and I piled 10 giant steaks on top of each other on a big plate. And Gwyneth Paltrow was in front of me uh, and she turned around and looked behind at me and I'm holding this steak stacked plate. And I just said, I- I'm doing the Atkins diet. And so she looked at me and was like, cool, turns back around, leaves me to it. I take a big napkin. I put (laughs) it on top of all the steaks. I flip the steaks over in the plate and then bundle them up. In a big cloth napkin wow. and they're bleeding. So it looks like I've just got some sort of dead child in this big mound, a stake that I then stick between my thighs to try and <laughs> under my mini skirt to try and waddle out of this party. The blood is now Obvious like trailing down my leg. Second, yeah. Uh and um in my speed to get out of the party, I knocked over Al Pacino because <laughs> he's much smaller than me, and I didn't <laughs> see him there. So I took down a legend uh in my pursuit of stakes. Uh, getting steaks home that I'd stolen from this party. The steaks flew out from under my leg. So it looked like this dead sort of animal was, uh, traveling across this party. I went, grabbed it, stuck it back under my leg, uh, left, uh, Al Pacino on the floor and, um, exited the party and realized that maybe I shouldn't go to these anymore. So yeah, wow. it was a long winded. So the steaks were literally high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never got, gone through so hoo-ha. much meat. I got <laughs> knocked over
2: by a beautiful one. She covered me in dead meat. Hoo ha! <laughs> that's that's as good as it. I, I can't that's really do a very anything good else. Al Pacino, Pacino uh, <laughs> You just have I to should. shout and say hoo ha. Oh my
0: god! <laughs> You're. I mean, you're an extraordinary, I guess I I would call it stand-up. Uh, you do these large, long comedy shows in front of thousands of people and some of them are almost like two hours long and you're completely gripping to watch and very funny and very warm and very charming and very unusual. Uh, you're one of the most, I think, unusual British talents that we have and uh, you're an incredibly confident performer.
2: Just keep going.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do more of the hyperbole.
0: Very handsome, uh yep. <laughs> very charismatic. Los wealthy, Angeles massive.
2: hyperbole. I love
0: <laughs> it. Fantastic performer.
2: Um, <laughs> I'm gonna luckily this has been recorded and I'm gonna just transcribe it and carry it around and look at it from time to time from now Great. on. That's nice of you, Jamila. That's really nice. And um I you know I have good gigs and bad gigs, and I, I feel more confident on stage now than I used to. But I understand now that I'm best when I'm operating within my own little corner and when I can control the environment a little bit. And uh, when I'm with an audience that understands where I'm coming from, I'm no good if I'm just thrust in front of a a big crowd that, you know, if I'm part of a big bill where there's big names and, uh, you know, suddenly I turn up and I'm all bumbly and stumbly and people are like, who the hell is this guy?
1: Also, no a lot that. of the Shut shows up, that you're,
2: a <laughs> lot of the shows that you're talking about, I have. I'm like a prop comic because I always have support from my laptop a lot of the time. Only recently have I started doing shows where I'm not projecting stuff on screen. So most of the time, I'm making things at home and I'm preparing things, and then I sort of present them. It's a little bit like a TED talk or a a comedy, you know, a TED comedy talk, presentation. Yeah. So I have that to back me up. I know that if things go really wrong, if I lose the power of speech, I can fire off a video now and again. So that's that's how I get to the two hour running time. And as well with the show bug, which we were talking about earlier, I'm showing other people's work there. All I'm doing is presenting it really. So it's not like um, uh, you're you right. Know, I take it back. Dave There's no Chappelle value what going you do. on stage <laughs> and, and just talking with no other backup like that. I'm I'm probably excessively hard on myself and it is a problem that that does need to be kept an eye on that that sort of um self-deprecating thing that then turns into something a bit more um unhelpful Sinister. and m- more of a kind of difficult internal negative narrative that that needs to be squashed every now and again but I wouldn't want to get rid of it completely I was watching an interview with I don't know if I should say her name. Well, you can cut it out if you don't think it's appropriate. But I was watching an interview with a young American actor, Zendaya, or Zendaya, Mm -hmm. do you say? Mm -hmm. Anyway, brilliant actor. Um, And she, someone asked her a question. She was answering a load of questions sent in by people on the internet. One of them was, what do you not like about yourself? And she chose not to answer the question at all because she felt that to say anything negative in that way was not helpful and she didn't want to be someone who was kind of um propagating that um idea of having to put yourself down the whole time people some you know sometimes people feel obliged to to be negative about themselves and i felt like okay i understand that and i i definitely admire the fact that you've thought about that but like you can have you can you can go somewhere in between, can't you? Because because people are definitely, most people are, well, let's say all people have the capacity to be absolute twats and to do embarrassing, stupid, wrong-headed things. I mean, that is mm. evident. And we're in a culture you know now what?
0: that... Well, you know what? Not Zendaya. I've met her many times and I actually think she came up with a very uh like um dignified and careful way of avoiding the fact that there's probably nothing wrong with her I mean honestly I've met her she's as good as fucking perfect it's insane it's insane uh, yeah. you can't you don't even know what's happening like she uh, she scrambles my, do you remember that sort of meme of Winona Ryder on stage at the Golden Globes when Stranger Things had won and they just started yes. putting all this, like pictures Is of arithmetic the around her yeah, facial man. expressions like that's yeah. how I feel whenever I'm with Zendaya where I'm just like oh no you are <laughs> like, you don't make any mistakes like you're just perfect you're cool you dress right you say the right thing you never say to like I I always say too much. I always overshare. I always twat myself. I knock cappuccino over with, you know, bleeding meat <laughs> down my leg. You know, I I it's I feel like I'm her tether. <laughs> You know, I feel the <laughs> but, but, but the then underworld the person, version
2: of her. <laughs> you're the person with the high stakes I knocked Al Pacino over and got a dirty look from Gwyneth Paltrow's story. That's the story I want to hear. I don't want to hear like, oh yeah, everything <laughs> oh, went okay. absolutely great for me again today. <laughs> yeah. I bet I you. Think, I think it must I'm be sure. hard.
0: I don't think she's got a self-deprecating story. I think she's too cool. I think it's uh, I'm good for I'm, her. But I absolutely. think that's what that was. I think she was avoiding like having to make the mere mortal who asked that question feel even more, even lower.
2: No, I'm not buying I that. She's
0: being the- <laughs> I would say that I,
2: I, even Zendaya, and I don't disagree with anything you say. I think she's amazing. And, but even her, I bet she does some pretty stupids. Even her, that's the thing. Is like you, I just feel like you've got to keep in mind, especially when you're on social media or whatever, and you're looking at stuff that people are saying and arguments people are getting into. No one never puts a foot wrong everybody screws up
0: yeah you say, you, mean, you say that but and and I and I agree with you in fact there was this um advice someone gave me before I had to present at the golden globes I was extremely nervous and I uh, I was sitting with obscene people at the table like Jim Carrey was next to me and all these different like you know, Ted Danson all these different people I had to get up in front of all these people and present and someone just said listen remember that at some point in Everyone's life, apart from probably the Queen of England everyone has run out of toilet paper and they've only realised after they've taken a shit so they've then had to do that shitty squat walk around <laughs> their house looking for something to wipe their ass with he was like every single person on earth has been in that situation so he said, do you remember that when you're looking out across all those faces and, and it was like also it, it was great but it also plagued me because then as I was looking out like Meryl and Julia Roberts and Steven Spielberg I was imagining all of them doing this shitty squat walk and almost forgot all of my lines. But uh yeah, maybe Zendaya's done that as well, you know? When Zendaya runs out of
2: toilet paper, the queen comes around and wipes her yeah. eyes.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many
0: chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem. ...of a detour.
2: When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over, from book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It
1: smells amazing.
0: Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience.
2: Hmm transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily now that's a breath of fresh air wick
0: this is a this is a show about mental health and i am... Um, and I would love to kind of talk to you about this aspect of your life. I mean, everyone knows you as a comedian and you've now brought out Ramble Book. And I think you've been a bit more open about all of your feelings, about everything. How how would you say your mental health has been your whole life?
2: My whole life? I never started thinking about it. You know, I feel very conflicted about this subject, that? Mm. I really do. Because my parents were very conservative in every sense of the word. And one of the things I think they and a lot of people of their generation believed was that talking too much about this kind of thing is counterproductive and that actually sometimes the best policy is to, you know, keep calm and carry on, which is now... a kind of cliché of wrong-headed British stoicism, you know, mm-hmm. a, like uh, a hangover from the upper classes or whatever it was. You, oh, no, no, you don't talk about your feelings. No, 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 no. Stiff just upper a talk- lip. Stiff upper lip and all that. But the thing is that I think that there is, you know, the truth, as as most of the time the case, is somewhere in between. You know what I mean? Sometimes I think it probably is useful to be a little bit stiff upper lip. And not fall apart, not just dwell on things. You know what I mean. On the other hand, it is definitely useful to talk about su- some stuff and to be able yeah. to have someone listen to you and to feel that you're not alone and to feel that some of the things you're going through are normal and that you're not a uh, a total weirdo for feeling them. And because sometimes those feelings are frightening, you just think, "Shit, yeah, is this is this normal? Is just this? Does anyone else me. feel like yeah. this?" Yeah.
0: I, I see what you're saying, but I also think that the nuance there is that the last generations before us considered a lot to be falling. I mean, considered really any showing of emotion to be us falling apart. I do think they had a very kind of yeah, they went, uh, lo- low bar for what would be deemed yeah, yeah. as hysteria or not sure. being able to keep your shit together. So I I, don't, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think, of course, that we should have a kind of spectrum of reaction um, just in order to be able to get through the day. But I right. also think that they uh, they called a lot of things hysteria. Like my dad used to call a lot of things, like if I would just be mildly upset about something, he would be like... Why are you Why are you hysterical right now? And I, I wasn't, I was just like, shedding like one sort of like calm little tear. And he would see that as me completely losing control because he, you know, he's in his seventies. He uh, yes. he comes from a different time.
2: Absolutely. And that whole, I mean, that word, the hy- hysterical and hysteria, that was a kind of weird thing that was invented to apply to women whenever they showed mm. any kind of emotion and they got upset and it was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, she's hysterical. And, um, it's, a yes, it's, a. it's not helpful. It's a way of just shutting no. someone down really, isn't
0: it? I mean, last year was your first time in therapy, right? You, you had yeah. um, the second of your parents passing. I'm sorry to hear by the way that both your parents have passed in the last couple oh, of years. Oh, thank you. Um, namely your mum last year, more recently. Um, and so, so I mean, fucking hell, like having that happen amidst a pandemic, how are you feeling now?
2: um yeah I feel okay you know it's like everyone else isn't it you realize that that's the other thing is I think the older you get the more you realize well a lot of this stuff is probably normal like you asked before how do I think about my mental health throughout my life I definitely always thought of myself as a totally happy pretty carefree person and I I always told myself when I was younger, like, I, I never wanted to be someone who regretted things or um, worried about things in that way. I worried about other stuff. I worried a lot about, you know, the end of the world and I worried about my health. And if anything, you know, if anything at all went wrong health-wise, I always freaked out. But, um,
0: but I didn't I imagine didn't the worry... pandemic was fun for you?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was It was it was not good in that respect. I'm sure a lot of people can relate though, but I didn't worry about my mental health. I thought, no, I'm fine in that department. Um, but then I think when I got into my 30s and 40s, and then when I had kids, uh, I, just the pressures that were suddenly being exerted by parenthood and everything else, you know, and and sort of career stuff, and just having to grow up a little bit, I suppose. Because I was a baby man.
0: What's having kids like been like for you? We often have mothers coming onto the show to talk about it, but not that many dads. What's it been like for you? Yeah, I'm,
2: I mean, it is. It's definitely challenging. Because the thing is, I, I I I talk about it a little bit in in the book, and I talk about the fact that you know, I was this very immature sort of selfish guy. And, but I liked the idea of having children. I never really thought about it seriously. Uh, But when my wife had the conversation with me first, I was like, yeah, fine. Let's do that. That'll be fine. Uh, You can do all the boring stuff and I'll just be their best friend and, um, (laughs) you know that's get what into... i said to
0: james reverse reverse roles i was like yeah we, if you want to have a child then i would i can never see any poo i can never even yeah. see it. <laughs> i can't even know it's happening you have to remove all poo from my periphery i was like it can't be a part of like the life i want to have i was like you're on poo duty 24 7 i was like yeah. i don't care if that child gets a uti i will leave them in their shit like, until you get home i was like that's the kind of parent i'm gonna be i'm the fun dad you know, which uh, Exactly just right. to use the gender trope. But yeah, uh I was like, That's it. I'm not doing any of this. I'm not ne- I'm not negotiating with this terrorism. Um yeah. okay, so that was your thought. And then what was that the reality? Was my thought.
2: And then you find out very quickly that that's not a workable arrangement because for all sorts of reasons. Also because you don't want you do want to get involved. You know, you, you love them and you want to look after them and and it's uh you know the also the house the center must hold the union uh, of yourself and your partner if that falls apart then everything else falls apart so it's in your interest to share the labor so i it took me ages to make the transition to being a little bit more grown up about the whole thing i think And you describing what, uh, you know, you laying down your stipulations for having children was exactly what I said when it came to getting a dog, because we'd never had a dog. And then when our son was uh, six or something, he was like, can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? Like, oh, I, I really don't want a dog. You know, we've got children and that's complicated enough. Let's not bring another life into this whole thing. But um He was adamant, let's get a dog, let's get a dog. And my wife was like, oh, go on, let's get a dog. It would be so nice. And she said to me, you don't have to do anything. I promise you were her words. I promise you, you won't have to (laughs) pick up a single poo. I'll feed it. We'll look after it. Me and the kids will take it for walks. You don't have to do anything. Because I was never a doggy person. My dad did not like dogs. At all. So I grew up with that uh, prejudice towards dogs. And for the first few, for the first few months, it was like, ah, the dog, Jesus. And then then the dog came and this is our dog, Rosie, uh, who is a Whippet Poodle Cross. And she turned up as a puppy, very sweet little bundle of fur. But she trashed the place, you know, and she did all the things I absolutely did not want done. Wee wee and poo poo everywhere, really bright yellow wee on all the floors, all the carpets, chewing up my expensive headphones. I just got my first pair of glasses and they I'd, go, I'd gone for the really expensive Zeiss lenses. She chewed the living shit out of them and <laughs> everything was destroyed. And it was like, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen. So me and Rosie didn't get on for a while. But then after a while, when inevitably... Everybody else refused to do all the things that they'd promised they were going to do, i.e. take her for a walk and pick up her poos. I was like, fine, I guess I'll do it then. And so I started going for walks with Rosie and she very quickly became my pal and I fell in love with her. And um, we, it it was just the best thing ever. And, um, and I really think that, I mean, by then I was a, a little bit more responsible in the parent department, I hope, but Rosie was definitely a help as well as far as making the transition into being a slightly more mature and responsible person who appreciated that it was fun to <laughs> yeah. look it's after It's funny people. you say
0: that. James said the same thing to me, because again, I was like, oh, I would like a dog, but I don't want to deal with poo. So I think we shouldn't get a dog. He was like, I'll deal with all the poo. <laughs> so I was like, all right. And I've just found like, first of all, that never happened. And I'm dealing with a lot of, poo. there's more shit in my life than I ever, you know, had on my bingo card. But also I just found out he's been letting the dog go around the back of the house. There's like a little alleyway that we have that none of us ever, like I never traverse that alleyway. I just went back there the other day because we're having some work done in it, found like 20 poos. He's just been letting the dog go pile. around and do secret poos that he's not picking up. That son of a bitch not only lied, but he's going above and beyond to not have to negotiate. Now, guess who's going to have to deal with that? He's away on tour. Guess who's got 20 <laughs> poos waiting for her after this fucking podcast? <laughs> Infuriating. Um, but I do want to ask you, because like, sure. you talk in the book about having had a complicated and complex relationship with your dad, like talking about his final months, you know, with you, where he moved in with you uh, when he was you know very very sick and you trying to kind of create closure uh throughout your bond you know you didn't feel necessarily maybe super close to your dad I mean how would you how would you describe the complexity of that relationship because I always find that so interesting when someone's had children as to how they how that impacts their relationship with their kids
2: Yeah. Well, as I said before, you know, my folks were conservative and even though they were very loving and cool, my dad was in the TV show that me and Joe made. We called him Bad Mm. Dad. So he was in his seventies then, uh, his mid seventies, but, and he was kind of a posh old guy, you know, very conservative and didn't like the music that we liked, thought pop culture was a load of shit and that it was entirely populated by creeps and weirdos and that it was worthless and grotesque. And so we thought, in fact, it was our friend Louis Theroux said, it would be funny, you should get your dad in the show, you know, because you should get him to review gangster rap, said Louis. And um, so we did that. And he started off reviewing not just gangster rap, but all sorts of modern music. And then we used to take him to festivals and, uh, you know, get him in the mosh pit for the Foo Fighters at the V97 (laughs) and things like this. And it didn't convince him that that stuff was good at all. He still hated it all. I think the only time he ever was mildly complimentary about someone like that was when he met Coolio. We took him to Los Angeles and spent the day with Coolio driving around in his Humvee and uh uh Coolio introduced my dad to his crew, the forty thieves, and they they wrote some rap lyrics and got my dad to do a couple of lines on a record or something, which I don't think they <laughs> ever used. But he had a great time and my dad you know, he was impressed by anyone successful. So he just liked the fact that he was hanging out with this successful guy, Coolio. But the rest of the time he thought it was all a load of bollocks. But anyway, I guess the thing is that it it was it demonstrates how much my dad i think loved me and wanted to do whatever he could to help and as soon as we said like will you will you do these tv things he's like yeah fine sure no problem he didn't make any money out of it really he enjoyed the notoriety i think he liked showing off he was always a bit of a performer so yeah sure he did that but he was he would do anything for us but at the same time he he was um into this idea of being stoical and not talking about things and not dwelling on problems.
0: You said that when, um, when anything would happen, you said that when anything kind of there'd be a big emotional moment, you just kind of get like a tight squeeze yeah like a little yeah. squeeze from your dad and that incrementally over the years as life became harder and bigger and sadder things happened uh, rather than him opening up more the squeezes just got even harder which i found yeah. incredibly relatable and funny he was um, a he, he was a also, squeezer that
2: also that's, <laughs> that's not yeah. a crazy, phrase is it he was a squeezer
0: no yeah he was a squeezer but uh that's a difficult one then. If you would like, if you yourself feel like a sensitive person who's gravitating towards kind of sensitive people and you have all of these feelings, like what was that? How did you manage to become an open, sensitive person? And like, how has that impacted? Like, you know, are you like that with your kids? Are you giving them a sort of firm squeeze when they're upset and when they fall over? Or do you feel like you are
2: emotionally, no, I'm much more, more emotionally available? I'm much more keen to talk to them yeah i want to be close to them i want to be able to talk to them about anything and i want them to feel that they can talk to me about anything you know my dad and my mum were great with us when we were growing up and they we had a wonderful time especially um you know up especially up to the age of about 15 or something you know my dad was a travel writer and he used to take us on all these travels with him and so we had an amazing time but it was all about those trips because the rest of the time he was away. So I really didn't see him that much at all. Then it was a boarding school. So anytime he turned up, it was like, yay, it's dad. We're going to have a good time now. We're going to go to America or something. I've kind of an amazing trip. So what was missing though, was the kind of day to day business of him saying, Hey, how's things going? You know, what are you worried about? And um, did you break up with that girl? And uh, how are you feeling about it? So, he didn't know anything about that. He didn't know what was going on with me. And so I just got used to not talking to my parents about any of that stuff at all. And uh, I would really like it if, if my children could talk to me about that. And they do, I suppose, a little bit. Um, they definitely know that it's not embarrassing. And uh, so I'm glad about that. And yeah, when my dad moved in, when he got ill... I really really thought here we go. This is the this is the time when we're going to bond. Because he knows that he's only got a few months left. He was diagnosed with cancer towards the end of 2014. And I said, "Well, come and live with us, dad. You know, I'll look after you." And he said, "Great." He was obviously frightened and and um a little uh yeah, you know, as you would be, I guess, in that situation. And I know that he wanted to be looked after and he always loved where we lived. So he was definitely up for that arrangement. But what he wasn't up for was suddenly becoming all touchy-feely and having chats about everything. Because I wanted to ask him all these questions and have these conversations that we'd never had. You know, what was it like being in the war? And he talked a little bit about that and he wrote a little bit about that in a, in a kind of self-published autobiography. But I also wanted to know, like... Why did you and mum split up? You know, what was going on there? And, um, and why didn't you talk to us more? And why did you send us away to boarding school? Weren't you worried that that was going to disrupt our relationship, your relationship with your kids? I can't imagine sending my children away um, to boarding school. I'm not saying that anyone who does is a monster. I personally wouldn't want to do it. I wanted to mm-hmm. talk to him about all this stuff, you know, but uh, it never happened. He wasn't, he, he just didn't want to go there at all. And uh, it's not like he would shut me down or say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about it. He just made it clear that that wasn't on the menu. And instead, you know, from a practical point of view, you're overwhelmed by practicalities, meetings with doctors and pills and nappies and cleaning things up and preparing meals and, you know, trying to get him to eat the food and all this stuff.
0: Mm. I found it hysterical reading about how you had partially said that you, obviously you were kidding, uh, I think, um, but you said that, you know, you wanted him to move in with you to have these like three months of closure, but also in the hopes that you could maybe get a one man show out of it or write a book about this time. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> maybe me laugh. <laughs> So much, <laughs> such a hysterical, cynical thing to say, um, <laughs> and and here we are. You, you have the ramble about- book, so you know you <laughs> managed to squeeze, managed to <laughs> squeeze something out of that. But um- <laughs> and,
2: absolutely, and I think he would have been happy about it. Sometimes people ask me, what do you think your dad would have thought about the stuff you've written in the book? Because I do talk about some things that he probably wouldn't have enjoyed me talking about but I figure well he's dead so there's not that much he can do about that but you know I talk about a lot of the well that I talk about the um struggles that he had with money he sent his children to expensive schools but he couldn't really afford it so he got himself into terrible debt and that was part of the reason that he and my mum ended up splitting up I'm sure people understand that when money worries are involved boy oh boy that is really stressful and it's no good for maintaining a happy relationship so Mm. um he i talk about that and i also um you know i I mention numbers and i also uh reproduce a couple of letters sort of begging letters that he sent to friends of his and um asking for money you know asking for fairly large sums of money which absolutely must have crushed him um To do that. And then people have said to me, like, why would you publish that in your book? Like, he was obviously so humiliated having to write those letters in the first place. Now you're going to put them in a book? Um, But what I don't say in the book, which maybe I should have done, I think I maybe refer to it obliquely, is that I found all these letters after he died in a box in his belongings, and they were in a folder that said, financial crisis. Of interest to anyone who might come to write my life story one day. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I oh thought, oh my well, God. <laughs> yeah. I think he's going to be fine. <laughs> I think that he, I hope.
0: That's so funny that your dad was always preparing. That's so yeah. <laughs> cute. That's so weird. <laughs> That's so insane that he was making it a binder for sure. his, like, preparing for his posthumous. Uh autobiography. His, that is exactly. fucking fascinating. I never heard of that. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sure, I'm sure family members of mine have got secret binders like that. I'm sure yeah. that they're all waiting for their lives to be chronicled. That is hysterical. Yeah, he'd be fine with it then. He'd be fine I think He's, he was, would. I think I mean, he it's would. What he wanted. It, I, I feel
2: like he he had that <laughs> you know, he 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 wanted to do whatever he could for us. So I think there was a bit of him that was just thinking, yeah, go for your life. Look, I'm going to leave this stuff behind. If you can make a few quid out of it, then have away.
0: (laughs) Fucking hell. So, okay, so in that kind of pivotal few months, you did care for him. You don't feel like you made any massive emotional breakthroughs. Did you get any closure or not really?
2: There's little moments, you know. I mean, I think the, the fact that we just took him in at all, when I say we, of course, I mean me and my family, the fact that we were there for him must have meant something to him. I mean, that would really be a comfort to me if I thought my children were going to look after me when I came towards the end of my life, you know, mm-hmm. to not be totally alone. Um I had the uh good fortune to be able to take him in. Some people don't have that option and um you know there's they they send their parents to somewhere they can be looked after or cared for or whatever, but I was I felt really lucky that I could have my dad with us. And um and I think he definitely appreciated that. Um
0: And it meant a great deal to you, I can see.
2: Yeah, it did, and also my mum was always so sweet because you know she, she, by that time, they were they could be civil to each other, sort of, but she thought he was a massive pain in the ass, and um, she was like, <laughs> "Wow, I can't believe you're getting him to come and live with you." Good luck with that. She didn't say those words, but that was the implication. Uh, sometimes it was like, "Oh, okay." And after he died, you know, she would always say to me, "Oh, it's so nice that you did that for your dad." You know, because that couldn't have been easy. <laughs> I know I know what he's like. So passive,
0: little passive aggressive, uh, but kind uh, sentiments. And so, how has this then impacted you with parenting?
2: Uh, well, it's made on a practical level. It's made me think that I really need to. Throw away as much crap as I possibly can before I expire, because going through it's in it your all, private,
0: your private stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, like because um, I'm a hoarder, and so I will hang on <laughs> to absolutely anything thinking, oh, these are great souvenirs. Oh, i got to hang on to my, never mind the Buzzcocks mug that I got when I went on that panel show. Oh, I've got to hang on to these laminates from some Radiohead gig that I went to in 2007. Oh, I've got to hang on. This is solid gold, priceless stuff. Memorabilia, yeah. Yeah. But it's not. It's boring, stupid stuff. And one day... Uh, my children will have to sift through it and go, oh, what are we going to do with this?" Dad kept it, so it must have meant something to him.: Well, they'll but make no. a very
0: exposing autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> about you, as sure your hope.
2: Well, they absolutely can. I mean, I'm just really trying to, because the experience of going through all my parents' stuff and all their boxes after their death was more difficult, I think, than the actual dying part. Just being plunged back into the past and being confronted with all this evidence of of um, what their lives were like and things you didn't realize and hardships they endured, which they never really spoke about, and suddenly you're reading letters where they're all laid bare and looking at photographs and just the sadness of 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 looking. At the past in that way. It's hard. You've got to be careful with this stuff. And you've got to be careful what you pass on. You know, you can pare it down, I think. You can curate it somewhat. And you can say, you can leave something behind for people and go, here you go, look, here's here is most of the good times, maybe a couple of the bad times, but, you know, it wasn't so bad. And, um, and you don't have to spend eight months sifting through it all to um, figure out what to keep.
0: God, yeah. Also, you know, we're like the sex toy generation. So we really, you know, like God knows what's lying around that we have compared to our parents, what they had. Do you know what I mean? God, that would be fucking terrible. That would be terrible if your kids found any of your, specifically yours, Adam. You know, we all know about yours now, but I mean, our generation have got all kinds of shit going on in their drawers. That's a good point. We all need to think about that. If you die today, are you comfortable with everything that's in your house for other yeah. people to go through, because even though we're gone, I feel as though the uh, the embarrassment could penetrate the realm. I feel as though I feel <laughs> well, that's as though a I would, I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Speaking of sex toys and penetrating the realm, but I feel as though I I know that my soul, if there is a soul, would still cringe. Afterwards, yeah, I'm gonna do a big old sweep of my house, even if I don't have children. I don't want my dog finding this stuff later. (laughs) And don't forget the hard drive.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One of the things that we spoke about uh, on the phone the other day was also that you said that you'd had a bit of a a midlife crisis, is it fair to say?
2: Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I'm still in the grip of that. Was that because of the
0: lockdown or was that pre-lockdown?
2: That was taking shape pre-lockdown. That certainly started kicking in in earnest when my dad died and when I started thinking more seriously about mortality and how long you've got left and what are you doing and you know all that sort of crap and that really I think is um, what a a, what a midlife crisis is and I don't think it's exclusive to men although maybe traditionally it has been um, more associated with men and
0: I think that's just uh, because guess, uh, men bottle it up. Men are encouraged or forced kind of to bottle it up and for longer. I think probably all people have multiple different kind of breakdown periods through their life. But I think the reason the cliche has kind of na- uh, gone more towards men is because women are able to at least get it out. You know, at least we're encouraged to and allowed to uh, speak about our feelings to one another and sometimes to men. And so it's not all just kind of like we're not just sort of like cannonball that's waiting to explode because it's only so long that anyone can bottle up all those feelings. And so it feels as though there comes a certain point where men can no longer hold all of this in and then they just sort of pop and buy a Ferrari. That's the cliche.
2: <laughs> That's the cliche, right. And yeah. also, speaking of Ferraris, because it's it used to be traditionally associated with a, a guy getting to a certain age and then going out and his relationship breaks down. He goes out with a much younger woman and gets mm-hmm. a motorbike and wears a leather jacket and starts jumping out of planes. You know, it's clearly something that's associated with a certain level of privilege. You have to have the privilege of being able to worry about all this shit and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, have the time to sit there and think, oh, am I doing enough with my life and what have I done and how long you know what what, what about my legacy? all that kind of thing. you know, that is an expression of uh, of a certain kind of privilege. so, I appreciate that. But also, I think that cliche doesn't really do justice to how difficult it is to, to really mm. wrestle. Because I guess you can't, you can avoid it. Perhaps maybe that's where the jumping out of planes and the motorbikes comes in, is, is people trying to avoid actually reckoning with all this stuff, reckoning with your own mortality and with what you have done and what you should do with the rest of your life and all this kind of thing and, and, um, taking stock of your relationships and I'm making it sound as if I've kind of gone through a checklist and fixed everything new, no. but, um, <laughs> I'm definitely aware of the need to do so.
0: What was yours like then? What did you feel? What did you go through? Um, well, I suppose it
2: was, it was all that stuff that I described about going through boxes of my parents' stuff and making me think about what kind of person I used to be and making me regret, I suppose, some of the things that I didn't do or some of the ways that I behaved, some of the ways that I treated people, thinking about that kind of stuff, certain amount of getting in touch with people I hadn't seen for a long time and saying, hey, you know, I don't know if you feel annoyed about some of the things I did and said in those days, but I've been thinking about them and I'm sorry. And um, things like that,
0: I always worry, I, how is that met? Because I was worried, like, when I, if I, when I sometimes think about doing that, and I haven't had, uh, many examples of mistreatment. There was probably one, one boyfriend who I was way too troubled to date and I didn't treat him very well. And I sent him a, a letter of apology and he was very nice about it. But there was a couple of other maybe people I dated across the world where I was like, oh, I feel like I didn't nail that, um, emotionally. And I was worried that they'd just, um, think I was arrogant for presuming. They'd been hanging on to that all this time. So then I'd check it out. So how was it? How, I always want to know, how did it go when you said sorry to these people all these years later?
2: Fine. I mean, it was fine. I think there's a way of doing it. I know exactly what yeah, you're yeah. talking about. And I think it's good to bear that in mind. Sometimes people are... Very... I that's just my
0: own insecurity speaking. That's not no, a no, real no, thing. Think... That's just me no, imagining that it'll be received badly.
2: <laughs> well, no, I think you're right. It's like um you don't want to um you don't want to imply that they've just been kind of fretting about you for the last 25 years or whatever. They've just been getting on with their own lives and maybe they're very, very happy to not have to deal with you anymore and they don't particularly relish you coming out from the past and going, hi, it's me again. Remember that annoying thing I did? Well, I just wanted to remind you about it and and also make myself feel better about it by telling you about it again. So that's good. I feel better about it now. Bye. You know, and just, (laughs) you don't want to do that. Um, but <laughs> that's you... exactly
0: what I'm afraid of, but yours went well. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it went well. I think there's a way of doing it without, I mean, I was in, I was in semi-regular contact with these people anyway, so right. it wasn't totally out of the blue, okay. but I really, I really didn't regret doing it. And, um, and a couple of the people said, you know what, I'm really, I really appreciate that. Um, so, I, I was happy that I did it. I mean, I could, there's probably a number of people that I should do it with that I haven't done, but um, it's an ongoing process.
0: It's a process. Um, okay. So, how did it feel aside from the fact that you were writing letters of atonement? Like, how did you feel? Did you feel anxious? I know that, you know, you are an overthinker, you know, you're a deeply analytical person. Like, did it come out in mood swings? Did it come out in sadness or was it more of a kind of, like slow pragmatic experience i've never had a midlife um, crisis i've had quarter life crisis so far and I, oh I'm, yeah, okay. I'm speeding <laughs> on my way to my midlife crisis and i would like to know what's coming we all would adam what's coming
2: well yeah. i guess it's different for everyone but
0: yes for me That's true.
2: very emotional uh i just just crying loads at everything crying at music yeah. crying in films crying. There's a bit in my, cause I'm doing a, a series of live shows at the moment in the UK where I go out and I read from the book and I generally finish with a, a piece, uh, a, which is called Fun Dad about my relationship with my own children and, and being a parent. And there's a bit towards the end that always triggers me. It's so weird. It's like, it's like a switch that I've built into the book that just sets me off. And I think that if people came to see me more than once, they'd think, oh my God, he always chokes up at that bit. Like, is he acting or what? But it's not, it's real. It's it, it. You can't control it. It's the sort of last couple of paragraphs of a chapter called Fun, Dad. And it's about my son when he was 14 and he was just going through a phase of being a very um, unreachable teenager. And it sort of broke my heart to not be able to, I mean, I feel emotional even just talking about it. You know, my whole thing was that I wanted to be close to them. And I, and I liked being friendly. You can go too far with the whole being friends with your kids thing, but it was always mm-hmm. important to me that, that we were friendly and I loved their company and I loved being able to talk to them. And then suddenly they go through a phase that everyone has to go through, some more than others, of being a teenager, establishing their own sense of individuality, establishing, establishing themselves as a person apart from you. And maybe a part of that will be them hating you and thinking you're an absolute tit. And I just (laughs) didn't like it. I just, the baby, the sort of oversensitive baby in me just really hated it and, uh, made me sad. And so I write about a a, a moment in the car where we're listening to music and music's been one of the things that has really been, um, a way of bonding for, for me and, and, uh, my son. And, um, it was just a moment where I thought that he fucking hated me and didn't want to talk to me. And, uh, and then I told him to put on a song that I thought he might like. And he sort of grudgingly called it up on Spotify and he stuck it on and he loved it. And it just, every time I think about it, it makes me want to cry. And it was such Sweet. an amazing moment <laughs> to be with oh, him bless you, and Adam. to see him smile, you know
0: yeah i know that it must be like i always think about how difficult that is you know like unfriendly moments that uh we've all had with our parents or you know even watching my boyfriend and his parents just being like oh fuck like he's on the other side of the world now and he's like off touring and you know we just did the he just like he just um performed at like the hollywood bowl and they couldn't be here obviously because of the pandemic but also they're of a certain age and you're just like oh like fuck that must be so wild to do everything for a kid and like have this kid be completely reliant upon you for your for their survival and you're so close and you do everything together and you eat every meal together and you're there for like every fall and every big moment and then suddenly 18 comes along or 21 comes along and it's like poof they're off and you and it's considered weird and annoying if you're always like hounding them for daily information, you know, but you want to know what's yeah. I can't I honestly I can't even I can't even imagine it. I can't imagine what it must be like to be the parent to suddenly feel this distance from someone who just used to look in your eyes and be like, You're my whole world, you know. I mean a lot of babies mm. think they're gonna marry their parents when they're older. You just presume, you're like, it's yeah. going to be you and me forever. They're, they're, I mean, yeah, they're proposing exactly. all the time, left, right and centre to their parents in the age of about four onwards. Uh, so it must, be, <laughs> it must be wild to feel that distance. It
2: is. It's no fun. But also, it's fine. That's the other thing, is that one of the things my dad used to say to me was like, you'd be surprised how, how much you can get through. You'll be all right. And you can suffer the slings and arrows. Most of most of the worst moments I feel are moments where you're anticipating problems or you're worrying about what might happen. Actually, yeah. when things do happen on the whole, you can deal with it and you can get through it. And it's fine. It may be painful and difficult, but you know, you're gonna be all right. I think that's what sometimes when parents say, It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And sometimes you go, I feel like I went through a phase of thinking, you liar. It is not going to be all right. This is terrible. We're going to die. The world is bleak. There's climate change. How dare you tell me it's going to be all right. But what that phrase means, I think, is have a little faith in yourself and don't worry quite so much. You can get through it and you'll be all right. And I love you. And that's the important thing, and you know that means something. And I, I feel, uh, I feel as if I'm getting closer to appreciating that. You know what I mean?
0: A hundred, a hundred percent. And so, now, do you feel like you're out of the midlife crisis? Do you feel like you've it has been all yeah, right all and you've passed through it? Yeah, great. <laughs> I thought so. You feel a hundred percent top tier?
2: Yep. Absolutely fixed. I'm all sorted now. And uh, (laughs) thanks very much. Bye.
0: (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you very much. Um, I imagine this takes a while. I imagine it takes a while. My breakdown probably lasted about four years and I was only 26 when it started. I went through a four-year melt and then kind of, I think I saw you right in the middle of that. I'm not blaming you for it. Did
2: you? Was that the first time I met you?
0: Yeah, I was in my 20s and I was a fully out of my mind Uh, and you and I you and I ended up on some like we didn't know each other we ended up on this like it was you me and a singer ended up on this sort of like very late night uh, uh, what were we eating we're not the not tacos it's um tapas. tapas that was it yeah, Middle of the night tapas together, just sharing, just sharing all of our feelings randomly, bunch of strangers, just telling each other all the truths and then fucking off to our respective houses. Just making sure to say that because it sounds like we had a weird threesome after tapas. That was not the case. No. It was just a lot uh, of funny, intimate chat and then no touching. Just to be clear, no, absolutely. <laughs>
2: Despite my um, persistent entreaties, no, no,
0: that's not true. I <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I was a, I was a real mess, and your show was a real light to me. I loved, I love the way that your mind works. I, um, I feel, I've always felt very, and I think my boyfriend feels the same way, Adam. That we both feel very seen. By you in your um, ownership of your oddness and your curiosity, you both. Thanks. Bastard. I mean, I,
2: that's nice of you, and uh, I'll take it. And thank you very much indeed.
0: Bye. Okay, bye. Uh, we are actually <laughs> wrapping up, and I do want to say thank you to you uh, before you go, Adam Buxton. What do you weigh? Okay.
2: Well, basically
0: you know, a thing that's been
2: happening to me recently while I've been doing my book shows and traveling around the UK is that I've been hooking up with some of my old friends that I haven't seen for 20, 30 years sometimes. And on every occasion, it's been really great. And I feel like, oh, I was, I wasn't so bad back then. You know, there was a lot wrong with me and I was a little turd in a lot of ways, but I had pretty good taste in these friends and they're great. And they've turned out to be really fantastic and all the things i liked about them originally are still there so that made me feel very happy and, and encouraged i feel like i've i've got some really good friends and 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 i'm married to someone i love more and more and i actually feel very much especially since the lockdown that uh, we're pretty good and and um i said that in kind of a creepy way but <laughs> i'm happy about that <laughs> So I'm happy about those relationships. It's all about relationships. Where am Where am I at with people? That's what it's all about. It's not about awards. It's not about uh, money. Definitely not about money. It's definitely oh, I don't know. It's just a load of shit, isn't it? Really, but <laughs> it's the kind of thing that people say when they've when uh, they've had a very lucky life, which I have. But um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for for those friendships and and for those people around me. That's how I weigh it. And I th- I feel as if I've done quite well in that respect.
0: Thank you so much, Adam, for coming on to this podcast and talking to me about the last couple of years and your life um i love you come back uh, i would love to see you soon i hope we can have dinner so that you and james can finally fall in love and get married because you're the same fucking person i think he is your soulmate <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that's great i'll take you up on all of that thank you very much
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Way with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh peace, love, tranquility, and forgiveness.
1: Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.
0: Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash iWay.